Today, we're talking to Jason, CTO of Beyond Identity, about the need for multi-factor authentication and the intersection of baking and software development. You're listening to the Modern CTO Podcast. Hey, buddy, how are you? I'm doing all right. Man, this is great. So you just decided to add an extra S to your name. Is it still Jason or is it Jason or... It's just Jason, and I totally decided and sent it back in time, and my parents wrote it on my birth certificate. <laughs> there you go. So typically, I'd like to start by just like telling you a little bit about my background. So the brief story is 17 years as a software engineer building product teams and teams of teams, and then I started sharing like what I learned, going from individual contributor to first-time manager and so forth. Like as blogs, and then that turned into a book, and then the book turned into the podcast, and then the podcast got fairly popular, and it ended up becoming our full time thing. And now we make this show plus like fourteen other shows. It's pretty crazy. Cool. Yeah. How did you get started? How did I get started? I needed money to pay for college. <laughs> yeah. No. So I ended up going to UT Austin back in the mid nineties. Uh, I thought it was the best way of being able to study the thing I liked, physics, while doing something I knew I could make money at, electrical engineering. I fell in love with the immediacy of software development over hardware development. And like I said, I needed some money to actually help pay for school. I already had been writing code in high school, so I was able to get a a dev job for a geosciences company, and they paid me well enough to basically cover, cover my gaps for college. And I love the work. And companies trying to disrupt industries, i.e. startups, was always fascinating to me. I found a book. So, I, you know, a big reader. I love going to the library and honestly just walking the stacks just to, you know, discover stuff, right? The art of discovery. There was this book that looked interesting. It was called The Superman. And it was about Seymour Cray and the founding of Cray Computer. And, you know, the reasoning behind why he wanted to start it and whatnot. And so I thought that was pretty fascinating Michael Lewis had a couple of really entertaining books out at the time, and he had just published a new one called The New New Thing. And it was about the guy who started Netscape and Silicon Graphics. I thought it was interesting at the time because I actually worked on a Silicon Graphics machine, and I used Netscape and, and whatnot. And yeah, no, it was I, 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 f- I fell into it out of a necessity. You know, I needed to pay for school. I love the immediacy of it versus a lot of the stuff that I was going through at school, right? When you write software, you can see the results immediately. And yeah, that was 20 years ago. Is that one of the reasons why you're into baking? (laughs) Why I'm into baking? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's a quick result, right? Not if you do it well. It's not. So when I bake, it takes me about three days to get really what I want. What are you baking that takes three days? Sourdough, properly done. (laughs) How do you properly do sourdough? Well, you've you've, you've got your starters. You want your starters to be mature. The maturity of a starter is highly dependent on temperature, humidity, culture time, you really want to make sure that you're, you're taking your, from your starter and making a, a Levan, you know, when the little creatures are kind of at their peak productivity. I like a more acidic flavor, which generally means you want a longer fermentation at a colder temperature. Yeah, I've always liked more of the flavor like the San Francisco sourdough, which is more of that acetic acid sort of flavor. And so that's a, it's a colder temperature. The colder the temperature, the slower they go, but the more acetic acid you build up. I like to do a 12-hour rise on my Levin. I like to do a 12 to 24-hour on the main proof. And then once I form you know, the bowls of the dough, I'll let it rise for another four to six hours before I bake it. When did you pick this up? Was this all during the pandemic? 
<laughs> so as you can imagine, I, I enjoy food. I've always enjoyed food. I've always liked cooking food. It feels like engineering to me. It really is a combination of mechanical and chemical processes, right, that make the things that we like. The things that we really like are kind of a, a simultaneous impact on, you know, texture, the different flavors that we taste, the aromas that we smell, the way that we perceive it with our eyes. So, like, there's a strong design element to it. It's just, it's, it's fun. It's repeatable once you actually understand the process. I've always made decent food, but I've always made trash bread. And, yeah, when, uh, when the pandemic started, I decided there's nothing like repetition to figure out exact, all the ways of not doing something correctly. And, yeah, it wasn't until four to six months into the pandemic before I finally figured out how to actually make sourdough properly. And maybe I'm just an idiot because like all the YouTubes that I watched, it was just seemed effortless. You know, you do this, you do this, you do this, and you, and you finally get a result. But for me, I basically baked two loaves every day for six weeks before I started getting decent flavor and another 12 to 14 weeks before I finally got the right structure. Does your family appreciate it? So yes and no. My family treats it as an on-demand function now. Uh-huh. Unfortunately, they don't really understand the lead times necessary to, to do the things that they really like. So I often get requested, make this type of bread or make that type of bread the day of or the night before. And it's like, I, I needed to know three days ago. <laughs> yeah, demanding customers, huh? <laughs> no, that's how can we connect lessons learned with baking with either like leadership or what you do at Beyond Identity? I would split the difference and say, There's a couple lessons there for just foundational software engineering. And one of it is repeatability. The same inputs need to provide, need to get, like you don't have repeatability until the same inputs equal the same outputs. And that is 100% true, right, in baking. What's hard and what people don't quite realize is there's there's these implicit inputs that they're not conscious of. But you could think of baking as as functional programming. You just don't realize the inputs that you're actually giving it. Do you have examples of those? Like, yeah, no. So humidity. humidity. So when you're baking a loaf of bread, you're getting a mechanical rise out of the bread by steam formation. You're also getting a chemical change in the crust of the bread or the outer layer of the bread. And those two things kind of fight each other, right? And so you, typically when you see bread, you see how there's usually like breakthrough at some point. A really good loaf of bread manages to form that crust just before the, the loaf reaches peak volume. How do you do that? <laughs> How do you delay the crust formation until you're almost you're at ninety percent peak volume, right? Like, and obviously people perfected this over thousands of years just through trial and error and and like just being intuitive. But you know we we know better now. We actually understand the the uh, chemistry and the and the mechanics of, of baking. So yeah, it's the same inputs equal the same outputs. And for bread specifically, if you keep the humidity of the loaf uh, above, what, 60%, you'll delay crust formation. And once the humidity falls below that point, you get crust formation. So that's why when you break, like commercial ovens have steam injection specifically for the beginning of a bake. It's also why for, you know, home bakers like us, we'll put, you know, an ice cube in the cast iron or pour water in a pan underneath the, um, underneath the stone that's actually carrying the bread. But you know, the lesson there is um, repeatability, the same outputs equal the same inputs. What makes you positive that you actually understand all of the inputs? How do you, what are the hidden variables that maybe you haven't quite realized that are implicit? 
I find things like that uh, in especially like design of distributed systems to be a it's a hard thing, right? We take things for granted all the time. We don't quite really think of systems as as pure input output functions. But if we want repeatability, we we have to think about them in that way. And yeah, there's some connection there. I can't eat my distributed system, so maybe that, that's where <laughs> where it falls apart. But <laughs> not yet. The future is soon, my friend. <laughs> Repeatability, uh, discipline, right? Like uh, maybe we're all learners and I'm a little bit slow on that part, but if I didn't do it every day, I wouldn't have got there. And then also this is this is a kind of a my personality type sort of thing, but like I need to understand how something works before I feel like I, I can control its results. My journey in breaking bread wasn't just trial and error every day and watching a bunch of YouTubes. I think I bought about seven different books on bread making, and I even got some food chemistry books and food engineering books to, you know, try and understand, like, what gives it the structure? How do you control the crust formation? At one point, I think I read a paper where they were using machine vision and sensors to try and plot an optimal curve of volume expansion against crust formation. I don't know if the paper was really that kind of useful, but the, the, the point being is, how do you know you really understand something? Trial and error is necessary, but it's not enough. And it's no different in, in engineering, right? Like for the products that I work on, the problems that I'm interested in, you need discipline, you need experience, but you also need to understand the fundamentals of computing. You need to understand the fundamentals of dis- distributed systems. And for a lot of the security work, you have to understand the fundamentals of operating systems. And that requires reading books, that requires actually looking at source code of how operating systems work. And in a lot of cases, it requires like really reversing systems. Is that what you do at Beyond Identity? So Beyond Identity, we're basically a security company solving an identity and access problem. But what we mean by that is most security incidents that people experience today, especially the, the, the corporate security experience, is related to access and really related to password theft password phishing or site access phishing, those sorts of things. And so we look at that statistic, right, 80 plus percent. And you can read this in like Verizon's database of incident response. If 80 percent of incidents kind of completely bypass the access system, the access systems doesn't seem to be terribly effective at providing security results. (laughs) So when we got started, we rounded up a bunch of kind of security and systems thinkers and said, what are some of the fundamental problems of access and can we solve them more categorically as opposed to to instance by instance base or rather than whack-a-mole, are there fundamental things that, that, that are there? So we came up with these solutions that some of the benefits is you can remove passwords from the equation, but the real thrust of our product is to provide a simple access solution that humans can kind of use that take things like phishing off the table, that provide real fish resistance, that provide like MFA that isn't, you know, a pain in the ass, but also isn't isn't necessarily exploitable through all the phishing things that you see today. My role here, I'm the CTO. The definition of the job is very fluid. It's highly dependent on where the company is and its kind of life cycle. I joined here from the beginning, so I've got to experience, you know, the different the different parts of the life cycle. But 50 to 60% of my time is in the field with customers, either at customer sites or at conferences or whatnot. 30% of my time is with the product and engineering team, but more on product strategy and, and, and product vision. And, you know, 20% putting out fires, which is interesting, right? Like my job has evolved quite a bit to where I, the size of our organization and the amount of things that we're doing, I no longer have the time to have an opinion 
on a lot of implementation choices. And so I have to have like strong lieutenants for that. And I kind of have to spend my time focused on really product strategy and product outcomes, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, 100%. I'm at the small business level of like 15 people. I know you guys are like, you're much bigger, right? How many people are, are at Beyond Identity today? We're just shy of 200 people. And were you one of the founders? So the company got started officially in February of 2019. And at that time, it was uh, Jim Clark, TJ, or Tom Germalak, Nelson uh, Mello, and, and, and Mike Clark. I met the team in the summer of 2019. And it's kind of a funny story. I was leaving my previous company. I was a CTO at a company called Security Scorecard from 2016 through the, um, I guess, fall of 2019, early fall of 19. I had wanted to branch out and I was thinking about just kind of starting my own company. You know, I wanted to maybe do it myself. And I got an email out of the blue and it said it was from someone helping Jim Clark with his new company. And my initial response was, you know, like, there's no way I can get an email from anything related to Jim. And earlier when I was talking the story of how I got into all this, right, like the two books that I read and or two of the books that I read in college, it kind of really made me attracted to, to startups. One of them was that Michael Lewis book, The New New Thing. It was about Jim Clark. <laughs> so I've always known who he was and kind of the, the history of some of the companies he did. So I get this email in the summer of 2019. And I think I just ignored the first one because I thought it was just, you know, you all get trash emails all the time, right? Yeah. So I get another one a couple days later. And there's a little bit more background in it. It's like, hey, Jim, Jim lives in New York and he's been on the East Coast for a while now. He's really interested in this security company idea. He's got a couple folks together that have built this proof of concept of what it could be. And he's looking for a New York-based security leader who can help him get started. Yeah, so I spent time with the team over the course of like two or three weeks. And no, it was kind of funny. Jim hadn't even made me an offer to join the company yet. And I got a call from one of the guys saying, hey, we're going to meet our first prospective customer. And what time should we pick you up? <laughs> <laughs> so it, it all just happened pretty fast in the summer of 2019. It took us four to five months to ramp to about 20 total people, 15 engineers, and release the first version of our product. We got our first sale, I think, inside of 12 months, our first de- major deployments, obviously, in that, that time frame. We're 200 people today, uh, 100, 100 or so of them are engineers. Yeah, blowing and going. Nice. So what is it exactly that you do? Or do you build a suite of tools that help you with different things? You have like a tool chest? Are you consultants? Uh, yeah, no. So we build a, a SaaS service. It's an authentication and identity service. So if you're a company that uses like Google Workspace or if you're a company that uses Okta or Azure AD, Azure Authentication System, you can plug us into the back of that system. And we then distribute, we call it a platform authenticator. And that's actually, it's a term of art that came out of the, uh, the W3, W3C specification called WebAuthn. You think of it like a wallet. Think of it like a digital wallet that holds a couple of credentials or IDs. When a user has that, that will interact with our cloud service and your identity service to authenticate you to whatever you're trying to uh, access or log into. So kind of talking about the product from a high level, we can authenticate you through possession, right? You possessing a thing, we can authenticate you with a biometric, you are a thing. We can authenticate you with like a pen code, like kind of like Windows Hello for Business, a thing you know. 
The difference with the pin code is the the pin is actually a guard to a key that's locked in a secure enclave that's specific to your device. So there's, it's very much like when you access a, an iPhone, you have a couple tries before your phone locks. And what that pin is doing really is just providing access to a credential that's in a kind of this tamper-resistant security processor that's on that machine. And it's really that key that's authenticating you and providing proof of other properties to our cloud service. But yeah, we build an authentication system. We dub it a zero-trust access solution. We plug into the back. We don't displace SSOs. We plug into the back of the existing SSO. But we do displace your MFA solution. So a lot of our customers typically replace their Duo instance with our product. And you know, usually the catalyst for doing it is they need fish-resistant authentication. If they're going to do that, they'd like to maybe remove the password for their end users to give them a little better life experience. And they kind of want to get more visibility and control into access. And so... You know, one of the things that's unique about our architecture, because we're a platform authenticator, right, the, that, that concept of the wallet, because it lives on the machine that you're trying to do something from, as opposed to a secondary device, we have an ability to actually comment on and observe the security controls on that device at the time of access, right? So a typical, secu- a typical access architecture, you think of it as like these vertical stovepipes that don't really know anything about each other, right? So you have an MFA system. And you have uh, an SSO system that, that does password management. You have an MDM system that's pushing out like operating system configuration on the machine. And then you have an EDR system, right, that's looking out for malware and, and, and whatnot. And all of these systems kind of pump events into a, a SIM. And then you have these teams that are using, writing queries against that SIM to try and understand the big picture, right? What's going on in your environment from a security and access perspective. So we have all of these, what seem to be independent events that we're trying to correlate, but are they really independent, right? We're talking about a machine. We're talking about the security controls on that machine. We're saying we don't only want to put these controls on the machine. We want to verify they're there and use that verification as part of allowing someone to move forward. So, you know, a pithy line we typically uh, give is uh, a security tool is not a security control. So... MDM, for instance, right? Uh, whether we're talking about Jam, Fintune, AirWatch, or whatnot, you use MDMs to establish security controls on machines. But the MDM is the security tool, right? So you might define this profile that says, "All right, uh, I want to put these rules in the firewall of, uh, of my target machine to prevent uh, brute forcing of an RDP password. I want to make sure, obviously, the firewall is on. I want to make sure the disks are encrypted." I want to make sure there's an idle screen lock timeout on the machine. I want to make sure its value is three minutes, right? So then you apply that profile to a set of target machines. And again, this is all in the MDM, right? That is your intention. That's what you set out to do. It turns out those security controls don't get deployed to 100% of your targets, right? People mess up. People make mistakes. The system can give you back a green light saying, we've deployed this profile. How do you know you deployed that profile to the right machines? How do you know the way you're classing those machines into the profile is actually what you intended? So with our system, we give you a way of almost like unit testing or almost like verifying that your security design and intent has been achieved. But rather than just asking, answering that question in the general sense, it's really part of every authentication. So an authentication in our, in our system is very much a, a proof So I want you to prove that you can use the key that's glued to the physical machine, right? That I, right, that proof of possession. I want you to prove that you can use that key where the key unlock is a biometric and a pen, right? So I get my knowledge and inheritance. 
I want you to prove that that machine's firewall is enabled. I want you to prove the OS version. I want you to prove the RDP protection rule is in place. And I want you to prove that your idle screen lock is at least, or no, no more than 180 seconds, right? And then and only then would I classify you as high trust. And then and only then would I allow you to access, you know, our banking software or, or make um, transfers or whatnot. So, there, you know, there's a couple ideas in there. The first couple are really around like secure authentication that has fish resistance. Uh, but the final one is more of the, the, the zero trust concepts, which is we've got ourselves into a ton of trouble in the security landscape by treating security as, as transitive relations, right? Because you're in a place of privilege, you must be authorized to be there. Therefore, don't worry, right? Because you're in the VPN, I shouldn't worry. Because you're in the office, I shouldn't worry, Right. So why is it, and, and so then, you know, zero trust was this movement around, you know, we really have to have this minimal set of assumptions. And from there, we use just standard logic to deduce all of our other properties. We actually prove it. So why is it acceptable to then say, well, I can see a security tool on your machine. That's just another variation of perimeter-based security or transitive-based security. Just because you have M2 on your device doesn't mean it's the right policy. It doesn't mean it's established the right security controls. What you really care about is, are the security controls you expect present on the device prior to letting someone do something from that device? So ask the direct question and answer it in real time relative to the authentication. That's pretty sweet. So then you have to have your software will be on the computer that's trying to connect. Absolutely. And that is the concept of a platform authenticator. A platform authenticator is on the machine that someone is actually running the connection from. By being on the machine that someone's able to to make the... um, uh, the connection from, you are actually able to bring a huge benefit to the end user and the security of the company as well, and only by being on the machine. And so this has to do with fish resistance. So I'm sure you and the folks listening to this have read the headlines over the last six months. They've only kind of increased around MFA bypass and uh, credential harvesting and whatnot, right? Like all of these big breaches that we read about, the initial access or the lateral movement involves right stolen credentials, fished credentials, and MFA bypass. When you study that problem holistically, it turns out you can you can think about that problem as really a, a problem class because there's a bunch of demonstrations of how to run those exploits, but they're really all exploiting the same couple premise concepts. By being on the platform, you're able to, to do a couple of things, right? So by moving from a password to an asymmetric key pair where you're using the private key essentially to sign, you're now making it possible to where the password doesn't have to move or that key doesn't have to move, right? In the old world, if we go passwords, I have to know it, you have to know it, right? And it's like, oh, well, there's salts. Well, technically, a salt is between the web service and the, the database, right? It's, it's not between myself and the web service and all of the application load balancers between me and the web service, right? The CDN, the application load balancer, my entry point into a kube cluster. So passwords end up in a lot of machines. Those machines aren't all controlled by you or your company. Those processes, the memory those processes are using can swap. It can, those processes can crash. Those passwords can end up in the file system through that action. Like a password is just in, almost non-defendable, right? So by moving to an asymmetric key pair, right, I don't have to move that private key around. I don't have a guarantee yet, right? So step two is what if I only created those key pairs in secure enclaves? Turns out half of those secure enclaves can give me structural proofs that the key, in fact, will not move. The key will only ever exist in that secure memory in that tiny little security processor that's off the CPU. And you don't ask for the key. You send a little piece of data to the processor and say, sign this. 
and you can create keys with no policy. So a no policy key is useful for like device things, right? Like prove you're on the right device. And so you send the thing down and it'll sign it, but it's kind of like Ron Burgundy, right? It's going to sign anything you send to it. You can create keys with policies that are based on like pens, right? So pens kind of sounds like a password, but it's a little bit different. You run an HMAC protocol with the pen, and if the pen is correct, the processor will use that private key to then sign, you know, whatever piece of data you sent down and use that in the authentication process. So now I have a knowledge proof and a possession proof. The pen was never shared. The pen was just local to the system. It's susceptible to online attacks, but it's not susceptible to offline attacks, right? Like there's, there's nothing to export. That key was never in memory. I can't run crackers against it. I can run online attacks. I can do brute forcing, right? But those processors then have these things called anti-hammering. I'm sure you've experienced it where you, you fumble your phone pen and it just locks for some period I've of time. Kids, so, yeah. yeah. You can create bioguards um, on those keys, right? So, so step one is you got to move to asymmetric keys. So you're doing signatures for authentication, right? That that makes it possible where you don't have to spray the world with your secret. By doing it in an enclave, you now have a guarantee that that's not happening. But that's not enough. The third step is you have to have a platform authenticator run the client side of the authentication process. You know, a high level way of kind of understanding the intuition here is today our organizations think that they can train their employees out of the phishing problem. But the phishing problem in training feels a lot like, um, you know, quantum mechanics in some way. And, and, and the way I got there is I can train people to be 99.999% effective, right? But if they're doing 1,000 operations a week and I have 10,000 employees, then 99.99% effectiveness rate multiplied by that really, really big number is still a significant number of incidents that I'm having to deal with, right? So I, I can't train the problem away, right? But why am I asking a human to solve a computer's problem in the first place, right? Why am I asking a human to answer the question of, is this domain right? Are these characters not a homomorphic attack against something that you think you recognize? From an authentications perspective, the server is fixed, the code base of the client is fixed. If you have a platform authenticator, make it verify the origin as part of authentication. Don't even sign the challenge if the origin is not correct. So that's kind of where the platform authenticator plays in, right? And, it, and it's, not as, it's not exactly as simple as I'm, I'm representing it. Technically, you need the origin of the transport and you need the origin of the challenge. So it's kind of like, if you think old school OSI model, you need to verify not just that you're talking to a valid server, but that the challenge coming over that server is part of a package from an origin that you trust. Because remember, we, we deal with CDNs through Cloudflare, through CloudFront. We, there, there's all sorts of third parties that get involved that, that, that technically could, could, could be insider threat style man in the middles, right? So are those two origins that come across, right? The layer seven and the layer four origin, are they the same? And are they what you expect? And only if you're doing those things, are you actually int- only if you're doing those three checks and those three steps are you really providing fish resistance, right? And so, if you dig into the FIDO specification, you'll discover inside of both WebAuthn and CTAP, but just focus on WebAuthn because it's a little more accessible. There is a concept of a of a of a challenge origin, a challenge response. It's very very clear. You're not supposed to sign um, things that you. The software doesn't sign uh, things that fr- uh, doesn't sign with keys that don't match the challenge origin, unless you allowed that as a policy. Turns out we learned stuff from the world of uh, web servers and we translated it to authentication. When I say we, I mean the world, not us, right? WebAuthn came out of W3C. We're just taking the good bits and using it where we went. And you know, the fourth thing of what we do is 
all of that provides authentication that's fish resistance. But if you're going to do all that work, take the zero trust step as well. Ask the questions you care about, about security controls and roll it into authentication. Sorry, I just put a lot out there, but... No, no. Luckily, I have years of experience in this. Not in security specifically, but there was very few things that you said that I didn't fully understand. One of them that I didn't understand, I've never worked at an enterprise or built a company that was an enterprise level thing. So I personally haven't gotten to the platform authentication tools. I've never, I haven't used them before. Mm -hmm. You said that some things, it sits on a security chip off the CPU. Can you explain more about what that is? So we use the term secure enclave. It's a kind of a categorical term, but generally what we mean at the abstract level is a specialized processor that really only has a couple of instructions. Create key pair, delete key pair, sign with key handle X, There's a few more things it does, but you can kind of generalize in that way. This processor has its own NVRAM, right? So you can store. So when you create a key pair, you can create a key pair with certain properties that says this private key must be stored in the local secure NVRAM of the chip itself and is never allowed to be copied out. So wait, are you providing a physical device along with the computer that this thing is in? It turns out that it's almost impossible for you to buy a computer that doesn't already have this concept already baked into it. Really? Really. So so Secure Enclave is the category. The specific instances that you've probably heard about is called a TPM, right? So TPM is is, uh, the Trusted Computing Group. They wrote this spec called a TPM, and the gold standard is TPM 2.0. And it's this tiny little processor. And so obviously, implementations can vary. Some manufacturers will actually lay the TPM uh, processor in the same die that they have in the main, the main CPU in. Some of them will actually have the processor as a discrete component on the PCB. There's a couple different implementations, but in all implementations, the TPM is discreetly different. It is its own processor. So the way the TPM actually gets integrated with uh, the main system is you kind of treat it like this, like this remote CPU and you just send it commands. So you send it commands saying, uh, you know, create key, use key, delete key, that sort of thing. It carries a small amount of its own memory, right, that you can store keys in. That memory is tamper-proof, and and it's called secure memory. There's a couple similarities between this and actual CPU and and physical systems from operating systems. So, you know, the operating system problem, right, I have a finite amount of, of RAM and I have all these applications competing, right? And so then, well, virtual RAM came out of it. It's like, I'm going to give every application its own kind of infinite memory space, and then I'm going to hide how I actually map that to, to memory under the under the, the hood. Turns out you can do the exact same thing with TPMs, right? So TPMs may only have 15 slots or 14 slots for creating keys, right? Like little, little memory slots. But I have all sorts of applications that might want to create keys in this custom processor. Well, you can kind of do a virtual memory sort of thing. You can create... Think of it as like an anchor key or a root key with a policy that basically says this key is never allowed to, to leave the TPM. And then every time someone creates another key, you can say, well, this key needs to be part of this hierarchy. And it's only allowed to leave the TPM if it's ciphertext and has been encrypted by the key that's not allowed to leave the TPM. So you get this kind of virtual infinite number of slots by basically letting the key leave, but the key can't leave unless it's encrypted and it's and it can only be encrypted by something that is not allowed to leave or by something that has the same property of itself. So it kind of creates this in uh, recursive definition, if you will. So you might only have 15 physical slots to, to store keys in, but you could have an unlimited number of keys, really, if you're, if you're basically just 
running that process I described and, and, um, and whatnot. So TPM is the one you've most likely heard of, but there's a lot of other technologies that exist as well that, that have similar sorts of component building blocks. Apple had this chipset called T2. In the M1, they've revamped it a bit, and I, I'm actually a little bit behind on reading the, the, the doc they just published that kind of explains the new architecture. But I imagine it's based on some things I ran into a couple of weeks ago. It seems like they're evolving a lot closer to the TPM than they have before. ARM has this thing called Trust Zone. There are CPMs, CPU style instructions that have been around for a while where you can kind of emulate these sorts of things, right? Create a memory jail, create a processor jail, drop a TPM emulator inside that jail, and then essentially treat it as a system with a, a certain level of trust. And the really cool thing, the mind-blowing thing, actually, I could talk about TPMs forever. The really, really cool thing about the TPM is it can produce an evidence trail that is a proof that you can validate, a third party can validate that certain things are true. So for instance, there's this thing in a TPM called an EK, an endorsement key. An endorsement key is unique in each TPM. And an endorsement key ties back to an actual manufacturer, right? So I can use that endorsement key. So think of that endorsement key as a private key. And the manufacturer has the public key for it. So I can use that public key to basically encrypt little pieces of data and send it to that device. And that device can only really respond to me if it can decrypt that data properly and respond to whatever the the computation happens to be inside of the uh, the challenge that was actually issued down. So you can kind of use that to establish, am I talking to the right manufacturer? Yeah. Oh, 100%. You verify the manufacturer. So one of the ways that zero trust kind of went off the rails is, is, is technically it's not zero trust. It really is minimal assumptions, right? So you still have to assume trust in the manufacturer. But if you, would, if you assume trust in the manufacturer's TPM line, you can track it all the way back to that. And then at that point, the evidence trail of the authentication, it tells you, you know, you can basically have an actual proof saying this machine with proof of this key that was guarded by a biometric linked to this identity with this um, level of integrity on the system that's actually running. And not every device has a TPM, but the absence of evidence is actually pretty useful as well. So like we, we built this big policy engine where TPM 2.0 is kind of the gold standard. And when we don't get that, you can have medium trust, low trust. And the way you get medium trust, low trust is you just don't have that. You have claims. It claims like a, a semi-validated, unvalidated uh, uh, piece of data. And so, yeah, no, it's great, right? You get keys. The keys are never in memory. If they're never in memory, they can't be in the file system. Like the attacks against these, these, these types of devices are destructive. So it costs a lot of money. Successful attack only basically yields an ability against one person and on one device. So the blast radius is of an attack against like old style credentials is drastically reduced. Yeah, no, I, I, it's fascinating. It's fun. It's not exactly new. Like a lot of the stuff's been around since the late nineties. It's just, we haven't quite cared about security and the original intended usage of these chips was actually DRM. Really? Yeah. The big media companies wanted insure. Basically, they wanted rip prevention. Hmm. I just got a message yesterday from the CTO of Napster. <laughs> he oh, messaged yeah. me on LinkedIn. He goes, "Hey, what's up? I'm the CTO of Napster." And then you put in brackets, "Yes, we still exist." <laughs> <laughs> I learned something. I didn't know they still existed. Neither did I. But yeah, that they they drove the need for those DRM type systems, right? Yeah. Yeah, the original the original driver really was around DRM. There was this big backlash 
I think originally from uh, the Linux community or the FreeBSD community and EFF around, we don't want your DRM, you're going to break computing, blah, blah, blah. And so it, it caused people to just not really do much with it for a decade or so. Luckily, you guys have that technology to come tap into to make sweet authentication systems. Well, that's just it. I think I think the, the the cost of poor security and authentication is now far outweighing you know the counter concerns in some of the other areas. That you know, like I said, it's almost impossible to buy a consumer electronics device that doesn't have. So my iPhone has it. Yep. Is my iPhone having it so that it's not just there for third party, right? So when you log into your iPhone or your Mac OS, you are providing, um, so let's talk Mac OS. When you log into your Mac OS, you're providing a, a password that Mac OS is going to use to essentially unlock the usage of a key that's in that specialized processor. And that specialized processor is then going to, that key that you just unlocked is then going to uh, unlock your file system, so to speak, right? Got it. So that you can actually access your file system. It's going to unlock your keychain, right? So no difference with, with your iPhone, right? When you're putting your pen or you're doing your biometric, you're supplying an unlock. You're basically just kind of, I think they call them key bags now. You're unlocking a successive key bag that is a security zone around just private data that's used for encryption, signatures, that sort of thing. So it's, it's been available for a while. Uh, Apple's doing a better job now of showing more more capabilities. Traditionally, they really just let you do like create key, delete key. Sometimes that key wouldn't really end up where you wanted it to. to. But yeah, no, you can't, you can't. It's difficult to buy a computing device today that does not have this capability. Now, you guys are growing fast. Why do people buy it from a high level? You get CTOs listening, VPs of engineering, all types of tech leaders. Like, What pain are they experiencing that you guys relieve? So we provide fish-resistant MFA, right? If you're running anything that involves passwords, push notification, or TOTP-based authentication, you are vulnerable. And it's not a theoretical attack. Like, it's actually happening. And if you don't believe it, go to GitHub, download Evil Gen X, and have your security team pointed at your own infrastructure. Everyone needs to move to fish-resistant MFA, whether it's with us or not. That's the only thing that's really going to protect you. Uh, the U.S. federal government is mandating uh, all of their federal agencies get off that style of MFA in by the end of 2024, I think. So, you know, you, you have a real problem you must address, whether you solve it with us or not. Now, we've, we think you should solve it with us because we have a, um, you know, we have a principled solution that's a very easy end-user experience, right? If security companies that don't, consider usability and UX are kind of creating their next vulnerabilities. So we spend a lot of time making it easier on your end users. But also, you know, we have a pretty strong fine-grained policy engine that we built from the ground up as well that really helps you define your risk profile, right? Your unique risk profile in a super fine-grained way. So like we have customers that write policies that say things like, I want to check uh, certain registry key values that exist. I want to check the idle screen uh, lockout time is there, right? They're verifying all of these controls, mapping into a high trust device and then letting that proceed to high, you know, high risk applications, low trust devices and whatnot. And there's a lot of authentication solutions on the market. There's very few that have the architecture that we have. And there's no one that's done it as principally as we have. 
Do you think the companies like Memecast and like Know Before, my exposure to them has been primarily uh, phishing training, right, for mm-hmm. employees at scale. Do you think those types of companies are going to, to pivot into this identity space? So there's kind of a couple questions in there that honestly I don't have the answer to because it required a bit of privilege on their part. So first, Know Before is a great partner of ours. We, we work with them a lot. So when I was saying earlier, like you can't train the problem away, that's true and that needs to be the goal, but you've also, it's going to take you time to get to the goal. <laughs> so in the meantime, you do need to train, train your employees. With that said, I do fundamentally believe that part of the problem with phishing and the root cause of phishing is that we're expecting people to solve what's fundamentally a computer's problem, right? Yeah, I liked when you said that. That really clicked with me. For me, not having experience in this space, but being a technologist, when you said that, I was like, ooh, that's a good. I bet you say it a lot, right? You have to talk a lot to different prospective customers and stuff, but it really, it really comes off well the first time you hear it. Yeah, when you pitch a lot, you've got to find you've got to find a small set of of statements that resonate. If someone really wants you to dig in, then you can kind of dig in and geek out. The Ron Burgundy one was my favorite, though. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the thing. Like, the, so the, the the technical term is confused deputy. Like, if you actually look at security research, the problems that they look for in certain protocols is is it vulnerable to a confused deputy and whatnot. But I think you can make a strong argument that Ron Burgundy, fundamentally an anchor man. His teleprompter uh, protocol is susceptible to a confused deputy. Yeah, it's it's fun. <laughs> I love it. So people want to learn more. They want to try it out. They want to just explore this world. Where do they go? Beyondidentity.com. There's a, a sign-up page to try it out. You know, I've mostly been talking about our workforce product, which is kind of, you know, it's an IT product that your IT or security team would install for your workers and contractors. We have a dev kit version of the product. So if you wanted to build this experience into your applications for your end customers, you could. And you can get to that on our website as well. We also have what we call an SDO, a secure DevOps flavor of our product, which is which is pretty cool. And it, what it does is it, um, so everyone listening to this probably writes code or has written a lot of code. You all use Git. Your Git repo may be backed by a different company, but fundamentally you're all using Git. You all manage SSH keys, right, to authenticate your database syncs, right, your repo syncs. And we all kind of probably know this, but we overlook it pretty commonly. That SSH key doesn't have anything to do with the authenticity or authorship of each individual commit, right? Whatever your your your, your configuration setting is and your uh, setup is going to show up in that git commit, right? You can do dash dash author equal Donald Duck on a commit. And it will gladly take it, right? Another Ron Burgundy problem. So how often as an engineering leader or even as a security person doing incident response, have you looked at a Git log and tried to figure out exactly who did this commit come from, right? And and even if all the names are actually there, how do you know it's actually true? So no one signs their commits. SDLC integrity is now starting to become a big issue, right? The most, pop, the, the most well-known integrity uh, incident was with SolarWinds uh, um, a year or so ago, which was fascinating. If you really care about the integrity of your software development process, you need to worry about four things. Source code integrity, uh, build integrity, distribution integrity, and third-party build of materials integrity. The SALSA organization, SLSA, is a great place to go look to learn more about those four areas. But our, our SDO product is basically a seamless uh, source code integrity product. So when you're running our platform authenticator, in addition to helping you log into all of your corporate services, we will set up a signing agent 
and we will update your git config file on your targeted repos. So the next time you type git commit, the commit itself is signed with a key that's cryptographically linked both to your corporate identity and the security controls present on your device at the time of the commit. So yeah, go to our website, got a couple tools. And we're always happy to talk more if anyone's interested. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you would like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.